Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast and today is deadline day in the NBA, February 8th, 2018. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today and I'm joined by my usual co-podcasters. First up on the line from Chicago, 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, man? And fellow 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner, who is in studio. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. And also, we have a special guest in studio, none other than 538's editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, I was traded by Cleveland today, yeah. so I have uh, <laughs> have some free time. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you and literally every other player in the NBA. So, so Nate, yeah, I guess our little uh, trade deadline chat the other day wasn't enough uh, trade deadline talk for you. We, we needed to have more in studio here. I mean, I am kind of fascinated by the Cleveland Cavaliers. I kind of like them, but like I, I don't really kind of get what their game plan is. I don't want to telegraph my take too much. Sure, right? sure. But yeah, I'm not sure that like I really get what their game plan has been. This okay. Year. All right. Well, we'll get to that on today's show. We're going to talk about the NBA trade deadline. Certainly a lot of Cavaliers talk uh, with all the moves they made today, but also just about the league as a whole, winners and losers who should have made moves, who didn't make moves. Uh, we'll also bring you a significant digit on Kristaps Porzingis and the explosion of star injuries in the league this season. But first, we will talk about Nate's favorite team, most intriguing team, the Cleveland Cavaliers and their wild deadline day ride. In a 30-minute span around noon on Thursday, the Cavaliers almost completely overhauled their roster. First, they traded Isaiah Thomas and Channing Frye, plus a first-round pick to the Lakers for Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance Jr. Then they sent Iman Shumpert, Jay Crowder, and Derek Rose, and a second-round pick to get Rodney Hood and George Hill from the Jazz and Kings, respectively. And then they traded Dwayne Wade back to the Miami Heat for a second-round pick. So, guys, what do we make of this flurry of activity in Cleveland? Did the Cavs get better, or did they just get different? They got different, and they might end up being better. They probably will end up being better just because uh, of the very specific and just deep deficiencies that the roster had before this, which, which is that they were ancient. They played no defense at all. They had no guys who just could play defense, even if they, they decided they wanted to. Um, and the guys that they brought in, like Jay Crowder, uh, like Jay Crowder was brought in to be a three and D guy, and like he wasn't really hitting his threes, and he wasn't really playing much D. <laughs> and so, yeah, like they they got guys back who can uh, theoretically at least uh, do the things that uh, that they hadn't been doing. But uh, so, like George Hill came in, and George Hill has uh, traditionally, or you know, by reputation and, and in practice, been a been a good point, uh, defender at the point guard position. But this season, his numbers uh, both just. His on-off stuff, his deeper lineup-adjusted stuff, like really any way you can slice it, he's been bad in Sacramento. And so, like theoretically, yeah, George Hill comes in, he's going to be a good defender. But in the same way that Jay Crowder came in and was going to be a good defender, I mean, at least George Hill is hitting his threes this season. But, but yeah, there's a lot of these guys are going to be better playing next to LeBron that you have to do to say that they're definitely going to be better with this. I, I guess I'm somewhat close to Kyle in, in terms of opinion. Who knows whether this team will be good or not? I mean. It won't take much for them to be better, but it might take a little bit of time for them to be better. You assume that these guys are going to have something to prove now that they're in a new situation. George Hill in particular just looked incredibly unhappy. He had a tweet um, about a month and a half ago that was pretty much on par with Eric Bledsoe's I don't want to be here tweet um, on a night where he was, I think, replaced in the starting lineup by Darren Fox. And so I, I basically don't know. This team is so different. Um, you know, a stat that you can throw out there. Six players now left the Cavs today via trade, 
It's the highest number that we've seen, tied for the highest number in the last 30 years. Uh, David Gordon over at, at Stats and Info pulled that number for me. And the last time that happened, that was actually a LeBron team as well in 2008 with the Cavs. But when you change this much of the team, first of all, it tells you how messed up this team was before and kind of the the challenges that the Cavs faced as a result of uh, kind of parting ways with the general manager at that point, actually giving in to the Kyrie Irving demand and trading him, whether LeBron wanted that or not, but also that the chemistry had to change. I'm not sure all these guys would have been moved had it not been for chemistry. Isaiah Thomas was playing horribly, but it was very clear that people there didn't like him either. Um, so they have no choice but to get better on defense, trading Isaiah Thomas and Derrick Rose will do that. George Hill, even if he's a bad version of George Hill, will be better than both of those guys. He's much taller than than both of them. Uh, he's got long arms. He at least tries when he's motivated. Um, but I don't know about these other guys. I mean, Clarkson does not really have a defensive reputation at all. He's more athletic. Larry Nance is more athletic. Uh, I'm interested to see what Rodney Hood does. Uh, their bench rotation is going to be very interesting now. But I don't know if they get better. I, the one thing I do – no, definitively. I still don't see this as making them really competitive with Golden State, even if they do manage to make the finals. Yeah, I was trying to run some numbers where if you kind of take our preseason projections and use half that and half their RPM so far this year, it's probably a pretty decent projection for going forward performance. Um, if you look at that, I have them coming out a tiny bit ahead, but that's because it shows Isaiah Thomas as having been so bad this year that he's basically a replacement level player. So if you're ready to concede that the Cavs, one of their three supposed stars, is a replacement level guy or just barely above it, maybe um, that you know that you're upgrading from that, then okay. But like, still, the upside for this team is a lot lower, I think, than it was um, at the start of the year, where it seemed like. I mean, Jay Crowder is a guy who kind of an advanced stats darling, but it seemed like they actually had a fair amount of depth and things were interesting. And so, why didn't that supporting cast? gel together right um that's what i wonder about is, is something about lebron or kevin love or what but like so yeah if you kind of shuffle around a bunch of league averageish spare parts for other league averages spare parts and like clearly it wasn't working before i mean I, I agree with chris i think i think hill and nance are the more interesting parts and clarkson and hood whose numbers don't like very much um are guys that frankly i think are not going to play great defense anyway and so are you really solving any problem um but the question is, so you can imagine a team of LeBron James, Kevin Love, and a bunch of role players being like um, maybe the best team in the East, but like also a long distance from Golden State and probably Houston, who has two stars and a lot of role players who we know really, really gel well with those guys, and Capella's arguably a star. Um, but like, can you get there with a somewhat random assortment where... LeBron's head is in a weird place where Kevin Love is not going to be back. I mean, can you have that gel in the way that role players need to by the time we get to the playoffs, even knowing that Cleveland always plays way better than the playoffs than they do in the regular season? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I think I think it's hard to imagine this crew beating Golden State. So I like we had the, well, we did a chat earlier this week, and we had the same I think fundamental disagreement on this thing. I think that's never the, been the goal because uh, with this team, with the assets that they have, with the roster that they've had, they have because they haven't drafted well, they haven't developed well, they didn't have like young players to move around into these roles. Uh, because of that, and like what they were working with, 
they were never going to get to a point where they were brought into equilibrium with Golden State, where they you know had like better than a puncher's chance. And so I think the goal has to be uh, make sure we get to the finals or give us give ourselves a good chance to get to the finals. And then if something happens again, like the Draymond game uh, the year they won the finals, if there's a suspension, if there's an injury, something like that, be in position to you know pick up the money off the back of the truck if you know it falls off. Um, but like they were never going to get to a point where like you would say, oh yeah, they're they're going to go to seven games with. Uh, the but Warriors see, I don't think again. I think if Kevin Durant went to a yurt in Nepal for the rest of the year, I still think Golden State. First of all, I think they'd lose to Houston or someone. <laughs> but I still think that the Kevin Durant less or Steph Curry less Warriors would still be better than this incarnation of of the Cavs. Yeah, it seems like this was done almost as much to kind of raise the the floor and not necessarily the ceiling like they went into the season like you mentioned with potentially a really great ceiling because we had seen Isaiah Thomas be so great in the past and if he somehow gelled with LeBron and Kevin Love that that could elevate this team maybe a little bit closer to uh, what Golden State had especially if Jay Crowder played to his potential too. When those guys didn't play to their potential, and you wrote about this, Kyle, a lot of this trade, whatever benefits happen in, in the series of moves that happened today, were more about getting rid of dead weight and like almost replacement level players and improving them with like average or maybe slightly below average players who are not just complete garbage fires. Uh, and that will help you get better. But I, to everyone's point, that doesn't necessarily make you be any closer to Golden State. Uh, it just makes it a little bit more reliable that you won't, you know, go into this death spiral that they seem to have been in uh, for the past month or more. I mean, it is funny that Isaiah, the way I look at it, let's say they had traded a first rounder for Clarkson, whose deal is probably a mild negative, and Nance, who at the cost is pretty nice player, but not going to be a you know a championship difference maker probably. I mean that's probably roughly a fair trade. So the fact that they're throwing Isaiah in there on top of it, and you have Ramona Shelburne being like, "Oh, the Lakers will keep Isaiah Thomas," right? As though like he was fifth in the MVP balloting last year, right? As though like that was a question because it probably was. Like I mean they'll just release him, right? And then I don't know where he'd sign. Um, yeah. But like. But, you know, they completely zeroed out on the value of this guy that, like, I mean, frankly, even if Isaiah were kind of 80% or 100% of the Boston version, they were still at least fairly serious underdogs to win um, against the West. But, like, but, you know, I I don't know. I think think in the NBA you don't want to split the difference, and I feel like they split the difference a bit between rebuilding and kind of reloading, you know? That that was the exact challenge that they faced. I mean, this this is a huge concession that that trade wasn't working. It's not like anyone needed that to be spelled out for them, obviously. But that was actually what we headlined, even the story I wrote about that trade, was that they threaded the needle. Uh, but that also kind of assumed that you would get back a healthy enough version of Isaiah Thomas. They never had that. I mean, if we're approximating maybe he was playing it 40% of what he did last year, 35%. He was horrible, and that speaks to his offense, which is the only reason you would have him on the court anyway. Defensively, he was just as bad as he'd always been, if not worse. Um, they were subbing him out for offense and defense as recently as last night, and and that goes without saying, you know, even the parts about the locker room chemistry where he literally two days ago called out Ty Lue's staff and said, you know, they're not making in-game adjustments. Dude, you were the worst player I've seen just in terms of how poorly you're playing. Granted, he's coming back from a rough injury, 
But, I mean, he was garbage for how long had he been back? Three weeks? Four weeks? He was so bad. And still, like, he, he – his stature – I mean, this is the same guy that said Danny Ainge is going to have to back up the Brinks truck to pay me the max. He wasn't going to settle for anything less than the max. He's a very outspoken person. He's been through a lot on a personal level. He's been doubted his whole career. I totally get why he's so bombastic, but this – you don't you, – you have to tread a little bit more lightly when you're dealing with a championship-caliber team that's in as precarious a position as Cleveland is in. LeBron is the only thing that matters there at this point. So when you rub people the wrong way that quickly and you're not really backing any of it up with good play and quietly blaming other people, you know, rumored to be Kevin Love – uh, it just doesn't really fly there. And so it doesn't shock me that he was moved, uh, but it is a, a really stunning sort of quickness that it happened with. And, uh, I, I mean, I, the Cavs, I still think the idea behind their trade was right. I still think that Nets pick will be valuable, but it's pretty incredible to see it play out the way it did this quickly. And they actually were trying to go for Kimba Walker, it sounded like, today, and the trade deadline just didn't make it happen. Yeah, the trade for Kimba Walker would have had to bring back Nick Batum, which would have been another player that, you know, would make sense for the Cavs. Um, you know, I'm a Nick Batum fan from back when he was in Portland. He can run your offense. He can do a lot of things. He's like our our guy Boris Dia, who we'll talk about in a little bit, right. um, resurfacing in the league. Um, but so yeah, the the guys who are leaving, who are on the way out. Um, so uh, Derek Rose, so Amon Shumpert, so Isaiah Thomas, obviously Jay Crowder. Um, they have been net negatives, um, and so having them off the roster, replacing them with you know pretty good players or good players is going to be good. But also the guys who are on the roster who have been seeing minutes this season, Jeff Green has, I think, played the fourth most minutes on the team. And so, yeah, Rodney Hood's probably going to eat into those minutes. Like other players who are coming in uh, new to the rotation are going to push those guys down in minutes. And so you're not just adding players, you're adding players who are replacing really really just unplayable players uh, who are eating up minutes for you. Like you can't play Jose Calderon defensive possessions in a tight game. You couldn't play Isaiah in like most situations. And so, like, it's not just that they were adding, like, kind of the overall talent level a little bit up, but individually, like, these spots in the rotation, there aren't just gaping holes anymore either. But why do so many of these bets turn out badly for Cleveland on, on what you would call role players? You know, I guess maybe Green's an exception, but, like, Jay Crowder may be a little bit overrated by advanced analytics, but why does he go to being, like, a replacement-level player all of a sudden? You know, Wade, by the way, this could make a little bit more sense. I mean, Wade maybe wasn't fitting in there. He's still a league average-ish player. Right. He was contributing. Yeah. Even in this team, which... And we actually believe that that playoff experience actually might be a real thing that helps a little bit. You know, so dumping him and kind of, you know, I guess ceremoniously, but not for any return. I mean, that's that's a little weird. Um, But, you know, is is it the coaching? Is it something like, how come all these role players, like, don't work out in Cleveland in the way they do in Golden State or San Antonio or Houston? Because it's not like you look up and down that roster and say, oh, it's like totally talentless. These are guys that when they came into the club had reputations for being good at certain, having certain NBA level skills. Yeah. And one of the things that we've seen with, you know, there are certain coaches who are able to elevate players to play above the level of talent that they had shown in the past. Greg Popovich is the guy that we always go to for that because the Spurs 
seems like no matter who they trot out there, uh, and they have their core of, of stars, but the role players always seem to work out for them. And, you know, Cleveland has been such a, such a mess chemistry wise, I think for a number of years, but it's gotten way worse this year even. You know, oftentimes as stat heads, we discount the value of chemistry or we do think you can go out and get parts that look good on paper from other teams and try to build a team out of it. And maybe this Cleveland team, this half a season of, of players, that, especially Jay Crowder and, and people like that, is sort of a counterexample to that. My only question is, now, how do you build chemistry with a team uh, and, and even just build a feel for how they're going to play together with such a short schedule before the playoffs start? Now they're breaking in basically like a half of a new team or, or maybe that's even too low to of a, of a term to put it at and they have not much time to be able to work them together if maybe lebron can work a miracle uh, uh with making players play better around him but i don't know that seems like an interesting experiment in and of itself well i mean so i think it comes down to specialization and development for to go back to nate's question of they brought in guys who um, just don't fit the special the specialized needs of like playing with LeBron. Like you play a very specific offense when you play with LeBron, and you need to be able to do things like set back screens. You need to be able to, yeah. um, you know, make handoffs. You need to be able to, to do these things. And um, we're seeing that in Oklahoma City as well. Of if you can't do that, if you can't run in a, uh, operate in a pick and roll, and you know, find space along the perimeter and make yourself available on like on these cuts that you know off of LeBron drives, uh, then yeah, you're going to struggle on that. At the same time, uh, there isn't much room for development because, I mean, like, as is, like, an open secret or not even a secret in the league, like, the Cavs don't practice very much. They don't practice very hard because, look, LeBron wants to save it for the game. And so integrating into that system is difficult, but it's also difficult to develop guys. So, like, we make fun of Doc Rivers for, um, you know, going out and trading for all his old players and the players who, you know, uh, played uh, well against him when he was in uh, Boston. But you forget that when he was in Boston, they developed uh, Rajon Rondo. They developed Kendrick Perkins, who, by the way, the Cavs are rumored to be, you know, break black glass in case of, like, chemistry emergency, like signing Kendrick Perkins out of the G League. Um, and they developed, like, Avery Bradley and, like, a c- couple other, like, good players. Tony Allen was on those teams. Uh, that hasn't happened for the Cavs. Uh, the Cavs had Kay Felder in this backup uh, point guard last year. Uh, C.D. Iceman, uh, this year is actually, uh, they're trying to develop him. He's getting more minutes, uh, is a big reason that Wade, uh, was traded today. But, uh, to this point, they haven't developed anyone just like out of a late first round pick, out of a second round pick. And a lot of that's, uh, kind of just due to the way that they run their, their practices, their day to day, I think. I, I think to Nate's question, a, a huge part of it, there's two things. One, and Kyle touched on this a little bit. The needs of that roster are very particular, and they kind of ignored some of them to try to bring in guys that have big names. So when they knew that they were in the process of having to replace Irving, even before it went public, you heard Derek Rose's name mentioned as someone that they could bring in. And so they bring in Derek Rose. Okay, great. But Derek Rose can't shoot, and basically everybody that LeBron has played with the last few years, with maybe the exception of Wade, could shoot. And so... Rose couldn't shoot. Wade came back this year. He's still not the type of shooter LeBron is used to playing with anymore, where guys that can just spread the floor and give LeBron as much space as he needs to penetrate. Um, and, you know, Isaiah Thomas came back not really being able to shoot either, which is to be expected a little bit with his level of rust. But you didn't really have many other people on this roster, especially with Isaiah Hurt, 
that could really create a good shot for somebody else. So there wasn't anybody. All of a sudden, you go from Kyrie to that, and you go to a lot of guys that penetrate or try to get to the basket that can't shoot from outside when LeBron is looking to kick the ball out to someone. So part of it is roster construction. The other part that kind of feeds into that idea of roster construction all the guys that you need to pair with LeBron, if you're not using draft picks or if you don't have draft picks to use or don't use them well, you have to go sign guys for the minimum. And when you're doing that in a Miami situation where you've won a title or two, uh, guys are more willing to do that. Cleveland is so capped out at this point, and they were so injured to start the season. We, we obviously can look at Isaiah Thomas. Tristan Thompson wasn't there. Kevin Love was playing the five. Their defense was horrendous, and so – you had a lot of guys that were kind of one-way guys, and the one way that they were good at at one point were either not healthy or not in a position to really do as well as they normally would because they're still getting used to the idea of having to cede so much of their ball handling to LeBron. He's a very difficult person to play with in some ways, depending on what kind of player you are. If you're not a perimeter shooter, it's probably not going to be that easy for you to play with him because he needs you to back up so that he can do what he does best. I mean, there there aren't really very many diminishing returns on perimeter shooting. You know, if you have LeBron and, like, four guys who have a shot, then that's better than LeBron and four guys who are trying to slash the basket or whatever, right? But, like, but still, one could argue that the problem is not Cleveland's offense, but their but their defense. That their offense, uh, not always firing all cylinders, but more or less okay. Um, I mean, I know, I mean, yeah, look, the optimistic case for the trade is that uh, Hill and Hood can shoot. Um, Clarkson, I think, doesn't really fit into that category, but like Hill and Hood could, and Clarkson probably doesn't play very much, frankly. Um, and that the chemistry is better, but like, just look at that team, and like, kind of the best case scenario is like, I mean, are we sure they're better than Boston and Toronto? Yeah, and to the point about the defense, a lot of the guys that they got are, at least by the advanced stats, not darlings by any stretch of the imagination. Rodney Hood's uh, defensive real plus minus, which tries to estimate his effect on uh, kind of an average team's defensive efficiency when he's on the court versus off, is minus three. That's terrible. That's one of the worst uh, in the league for a perimeter player. George Hill is a minus two. Jordan Clarkson is a minus 1.4. And this is a team that, like you just mentioned, Nate, it's been well known that their issue above all issues, including the chemistry, has been on defense during the season. So some of these moves almost uh, were they made to just for the sake of sort of getting new people in just to try something different chemistry wise because they had been in such a terrible place in the locker room. And these were the deals that they could get. It doesn't seem like they were sort of targeting specific things. But is there something about the fit that, that maybe doesn't show up uh, in, in the numbers, but maybe will blossom when they get a chance to play with them? I mean, we, well, Chris already mentioned size, but like it's a matchups thing also. So I'm not sure that like in the aggregate they are obviously better um, than Boston or whatever. But I think in a series, now like you should like them a little more because it goes to like what happens in the playoffs, like when you know the defense is clamped down, whatever. Uh, but more like, uh, what happens when Jeff Green gets trapped by Marcus Smart and J- uh, Jason Tatum? Like, he doesn't have much for that, whereas, like, you hope that Rodney Hood would have a little more for that. Like, when Isaiah Thomas is getting bullied off the ball, like he was all last playoffs, or for much of last playoffs when he wasn't, you know, scoring 45 points with a busted hip. Um, inst- like, instead you have, uh, George Hill, who is, you know, bigger and, you know, harder to bully off like that, who is, uh, can play like, uh, Ron Harper, Derek Fisher, whatever type role. Uh, next to LeBron. So, like, there are, like, fit things where, like, yeah, in the playoffs, like, certain things uh, work a little better. And I think they're, they're, uh, they are a little better equipped for that, at least. 
I mean, we do know the difference between like motivated playoff calves and going through the motions of regular season calves is as enormous a difference as there's ever been for any NBA team. We wrote right? about this last yeah, year, in fact. It. it can trick projection systems and so forth a little bit. Um, I just wonder if, like, A, the upside on motivated calves, maybe they're the equivalent of, like, a 55-win team instead of a 60-some win team. And I think a 55-win team has, like, no chance to beat Golden State and is, is you know, probably a coin flip against Toronto or Boston. Um, and I also wonder, like, what's LeBron thinking? Might LeBron be thinking, I'm looking forward to L.A.? By the way, one of the weirdest aspects of this trade is now L.A. becomes a much more attractive destination for LeBron James. Right, yeah. They have now the cap room to not only sign LeBron, but another Max player. And it was sort of gifted to them by Cleveland, of all people, in the series of trades that took Jordan Clarkson off the books. So it it's, makes it even more of sort of a win-now move for the Cavs, which I guess we knew they were going to, if they if they didn't trade LeBron like you wanted them to do, Nate, uh, at the trade deadline, then they were going to make some moves that really just double down on whatever they could get over the rest of this season and make one last push for another finals appearance and maybe another championship. Uh, and that seems to have gotten even more acute uh, this afternoon. So, I mean, so one of my questions is, do do you think that there were other deals out there that would have like served them better, or were they just screwed from the start? So if they had gotten DeAndre Jordan or gotten the Batum and Kemba Walker deal done, or one of these things, like was there something that was out there in the rumors or you know otherwise that like would have moved you off this thing of the the Cavs are just you know cooked? Me, you, <laughs> that's you, a good yeah. question. Are yes. you kind of looking at Chris <laughs> on the screen? His screen, yeah, behind you. yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, DeAndre Jordan, uh, Kemba Walker. Tyreek Evans, I mean, you know, get two of those three, and all of a sudden you're definitely the best team in the East. Um, maybe gigantic chemistry issues, but the upside is is higher there, right? I mean, the way I look at it now is it's kind of like, it was basically if, if Kemba, excuse me, if Kyrie Irving had been hurt on the first day of the playoffs of last year's team, right? And they have a few more spare parts now, but on the other hand, guys that were more effective last year, like Tristan Thompson, has not been effective, right? Shumpert was traded. They've lost, actually, a lot of their depth, but like, you know, last year's team without Kyrie Irving is not that good a basketball team. And I don't know. And, like, the chemistry could work out. Like, now you have guys that do, like, fit a little bit more logically in with LeBron. But, like, I don't know. You could make a very, very contrarian case. That I Almost a trollishly contrarian case that, like, um, that they might as well have stuck it out with Isaiah. I'm not sure I can abide that case. Because he was so bad in the chemistry issues, but like, but you're certainly selling at absolute bottom of his, of his value. I mean, if you want to make a troll case, you could make the argument that they should have targeted Marcus Smart instead of sure. Isaiah in that in that Kyrie deal or like one of the the cheaper perimeter players that that Boston had. But I mean, that just goes back to the original sin of this whole thing is they they traded Kyrie for what ended up being uh, the Brooklyn pick, which because they traded their pick, they couldn't trade the Brooklyn pick. So like that was off the table then. And the Brooklyn pick looks less valuable now than it did because the Nets have not been as bad as people expected. So almost like every aspect of that trade has not worked out in Cleveland's favor and to some degree or another. But I mean, uh, but also there are a bunch of original sins. So like, remember when they traded two number one picks for Timofey Mozgov? Oh my god! Like that would have been nice to like sweeten a deal on a DeAndre Jordan deal right now if like they had you know some yeah. some value back from that. Um, or just going back to if they had used those picks and drafted and developed players into something useful. 
Um, there are useful players at the end of the first round and in the second, like, all the time. And I think uh, one of those uh, conveyed into or is going to convey into two seconds. But, but yeah, like, th- these are the things that, like, the Cavs have just been rolling things forward into, uh, you know, patchwork uh, moves. And, yeah, like, it, it, they've, I think they did the best job that they could have in this window. But those original sins are why it's such a mess here. I have to be honest in saying that when I saw everybody that they were picking up today, and it's funny because so many of us have said, you know, I've said this in radio interviews for weeks, I don't think there's a single guy out there that the Cavs can trade for that transforms this team into a club that I think wins a title. And, you know, of course the Cavs go out and then trade for like five people. Was that enough? I mean, probably not still. But... Because they've taken on so much long-term money, potentially, if you could have traded that Nets pick, I almost feel like you might as well have done it because you you, you didn't go all in because you still own that pick. But you, with all the money you put on the books at this point, it's not just this really flexible team. And they don't really have so many young pieces going forward now to where they can immediately pivot into a, a clean rebuild. I mean, Jordan Clarkson is nice, but he's not making rookie money anymore. Uh, Nance will be up pretty soon as well. And, and so at this point, you've got George Hill there. Rodney Hood, um, what is he going to be a restricted free agent this summer? So, I mean, you've got real money that you're going to owe some of these guys. And if you have to put that much money up anyway, maybe it would have made sense to go ahead and target somebody with that Nets pick and to see what you could have gotten for it, in addition to maybe a couple of the guys they got. Maybe not everyone, but a couple of those guys. I'm a big fan of when you have a high usage star like LeBron that you have a DeAndre Jordan type of center with him, probably because that gives you something to do with one of those five positions, a guy who can like certainly make baskets around the rim, who can play good defense, block some shots, and rebound the hell out of the ball. Like That guy is a useful force that does not compete in any way with, with what LeBron's trying to do and what's happening on the perimeter. And so I do wonder if like one of the bigger mistakes has been trying to play Kevin Love as a five, and I wonder if Tristan Thompson not being very effective is is a hidden factor in various problems that they're having. Um, but going after someone like that would have been a different way into the problem, maybe. Would you worry about something that, like with that? The, the thing I kept thinking with DeAndre and why I would have been reluctant to, to really part with anything too big for him, I just don't know. Assuming that the Cavs do make it back to the finals, which is obviously not a fair assumption, I don't know that he can play against Golden State's lineups entirely. I, I, I would worry. I mean, he's... Very athletic, almost as athletic as they come at that position. I just wonder a little bit if he loses effectiveness against a team like Golden State that can play with five guys outside the three-point line at a time. Yeah, like one of the reasons that the the Cavs were competitive in those early series, at least, uh, against the Warriors was Tristan was switching on those pick and rolls and like he was doing a, a decent enough job that like it wasn't just something that was targeted over and over. DeAndre used to do that a little bit more, but like... He's kind of lost, not a whole step, but like half a step. And so, yeah, I'm kind of with Chris where I'm not sure that would make as much sense. And also, um, when they play Kevin Love at the five, their differential is great. Like they are, they are, that, that's their best lineup. So, I mean, taking that away is, is also tough, especially when, um, I think, yeah, you're getting a diminished version of Tristan this year, obviously, but he's not one of their glaring weak spots. And they, again, like they, they use this to, to cover up a bunch of gaping holes in the, in the rotation. Okay, let's leave the Cavs there and move on to some other moves that were made by the 29 other teams in the league. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. 
In need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. This is how ZipRecruiter is different. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then it actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. They even review every application to identify the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. And unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners to The Lab can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash The Lab. That's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash The Lab. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash The Lab. Believe it or not, there were other teams to focus on at the deadline aside from the Cavaliers. So I just wanted to open up to you guys and ask what moves stood out to you among the non-Cleveland trades as potentially being impactful, whether in the rest of the regular season or in the playoffs. So, I mean, here's what I think is weird is that, I mean, we talked earlier about is the goal really to win the finals or win the East. I'm a little surprised that Boston and Toronto didn't say this is as low as the bar is ever going to be to win the conference. Um, I mean, Toronto's got a weird roster. where There's like not a lot of flexibility. And maybe Boston feels like uh, maybe is I mean is Hayward coming back? I mean you hear various rumors I guess, but like but you know I'm surprised that there was no deal for Evans or for Jordan, uh, just because it didn't seem like the price was that high. Yeah, and we also heard um, you know Kenneth Fareed's name around, and no one really yeah. uh, made a move on him, and that seems like kind of a player that that could have slotted into a team that was already pretty good and, and made a contribution. And then the Clippers just went ahead and took Lou Williams off the market for some reason. We talked about them potentially blowing things up a couple weeks ago when they traded uh, Blake Griffin. And then, you know, they go ahead and they don't trade DeAndre and they lock up Lou Williams to a multi-year contract. I mean, so the the Tyreek Evans and the Lou Williams deals are like one kind of related to each other because the Lou Williams deal uh, sort of depressed the market for uh, what you could expect to have to pay for for Tyreek, and the Grizzlies were just like, well, what if we just hang on to him and see if we can? But at the same time, that's uh, like the market for Tyreek in general was such that teams don't want to be like screwing around with their salaries with their with their salary cap right now because. Uh, everyone spent a lot of money three three summers ago, and like this summer, there are a lot of teams that are about to be in the ca- tax and don't really have a clear way out. So that's, I think, a big reason why uh, like a lot of these deals didn't happen. But could you know could Minnesota not have used him or someone? Right, you get a little bit of outside shooting maybe or someone. Right. Well, Minnesota's trying to trade Der- uh, trying to sign Derrick Rose off the waiver wire, yeah. so that they're yeah uh, they're preoccupied. Tibbs. Tibbs. <laughs> Watch how angry. The T Wolves fans get if and when Derrick Rose starts taking minutes from Tyus Jones, who's played really well, who was a starter for a while while Jeff Teague was hurt. I can already see it happening, and I I, I cannot wait for the takes out of Minnesota because Derrick Rose, anybody who's watched him play, anyone who knows how to read any sort of basketball statistic, has seen how harmful he is to a rotation to a plus minus what have you Tyus Jones is is the polar opposite plays very good defense 
uh, for his size. Actually very good on offense too. Doesn't really turn the ball over ever. Um, but yeah, Minnesota, that, that was a team where they were, there were actually three or four teams I thought in the West that could have done something that I think kind of helped Golden State by not doing anything because they, they're unlikely to win the conference, but I think if something broke the wrong way for Golden State would have been interesting to really watch. Minnesota was one of them for sure. Yeah, and how, you mentioned this a little bit, Kyle, but how much of that was just the situation where a bunch of guys signed basically unmovable contracts two summers ago, and now you have a bunch of teams that are either butting up into the luxury tax and they don't want to really take on more money. You have players that would be on expiring contracts, but uh, other teams aren't really wanting to take them on. And then you have uh, guys that just can't be moved, and it seems like this weird kind of stagnant, unintentionally so, economic system that made for, aside from Cleveland going just crazy, not that much activity at at a deadline but i mean but also uh one more uh element to that is that the the buyers or like the teams that would be buyers right now either are hesitant to um to throw in uh picks because like san antonio was involved in some trade talks um and they ended up uh, not wanting to trade for i think uh bradley because uh like late first round picks are really valuable to san antonio because san antonio does well with them um on the other hand uh there are teams like cleveland who is just spent it all like they have spent all the picks that they have to you know reasonably spend outside of uh, you know the Brooklyn pick which they held on to uh, but like if they had rolled some of those picks over that they traded for Mozgov or developed players in a better way where they were you know movable young assets uh, yeah like if the coffers were a little more full then you might see uh, deal more deals like that happening too I think some of these teams like uh, Houston and Toronto I mean the way some of the more sabermetrically I guess sabermetrics is baseball. I'm you could call it sabermetrics sporting basketball here. Um, but if you have like if you have two or three guys that are making the max or close to the max who are your stars, and then you have a bunch of guys making middle league minimum, right? Like it's actually kind of hard to trade from that portfolio because you kind of are already maximizing in both slots. You know what I mean? They're right, like you, not like those medium sized Lou Williams ish like chips necessarily. And so and so you know Toronto again. I think I'm fairly bullish on Toronto our system is I think they need another player or player and a half to like really be a serious contender but like but it's hard to know what they would move that isn't like a young player who's part of why they're good or isn't a star which kind of is running in circles a little bit so this actually uh comes to like best practices though because Marcus Smart's a good example where Marcus Smart finally was like you know made available recently uh even though you know people have been talking about Marcus Smart trades for years uh, but to this point, and like, it's always the joke that Danny, you know, hoards his assets. He, uh, you know, refuses to trade any of his young players. Uh, but like, that's not entirely true. The young players just hadn't been up for restricted free agency yet. Marcus Smart is coming off of the rookie deal. And teams traditionally have been really, really reluctant to give up that surplus value of a young player being paid next to nothing, uh, compared to what you would have to pay even on a second contract. Uh, but you're also right that it's hard to trade out of that, uh, out of that position. So, is that saying that like maybe the best practices should change where you have to start thinking about trading a guy in his second year or his early in his third year just to try to recoup some, like a more developed player if that's your timeline? I mean, the Celtics are had a few more options and they've obviously been an active team over the course of the past couple of seasons. I guess what I'm saying is like maybe it's not a problem, but if you are a team that like um, that like Houston or Toronto finds your effective role players, your effective kind of four through twelve or whatever and you maximize how effective they are in that setting, 
And in some ways, you don't have that much to make in terms of trades because, you know, I don't know, like a um, an Eric Gordon or someone is probably more valuable to Houston in the way they've built their team around him than anywhere else, right? And so, therefore, like, therefore, what opportunity is there to upgrade unless you're getting a star? And how do you create a star when you don't have high picks, when you don't necessarily have talented rookies and where the role players, you're already kind of maximizing? So it's, like, not necessarily a problem. It just can make, like, for certain types of teams that are well-constructed, that the trade deadline is actually less impactful. That's that's a interesting point. It's something that I thought about a little bit when I was watching the reports kind of fly back and forth. I think Mark Stein reported that San Antonio wanted to make a deal for Avery Bradley, who's also with the Clippers right now, in the wake of that Detroit Blake Griffin trade. And I was interested. I'm like, wow, that would be a really good fit because Avery Bradley moves so much without the ball. I think I looked last week on Second Spectrum. He actually has more screens set for him than any other player in the league per 100 possessions, something like 50 while he was in Detroit, 51 per game, which is insane. And, you know, San Antonio obviously does a ton of stuff off the ball, especially without Kawhi, because they really only have a couple guys that can create. So I'm liking that, you know, that thought of him going there. But then you see the report come back, and it's it all of a sudden it's that San Antonio might have to give up Danny Green. And it's like, wait a minute, is, is that even a good deal straight up and then you look at the fact that maybe San Antonio would have to give up a first and that that's what the Clippers want in order to Danny Green and a first to go get someone like Avery Bradley so it is really hard I mean the Spurs would have been a great fit for someone like Avery Bradley Oklahoma City after losing someone like Andre Robertson a defensive player of the year candidate would have been another good landing spot but like you said these guys already these teams have already kind of finally chiseled out their their contracts, their roster spots to try to fit the team the way they already have around three major players. And once you get past that stage, you know, there, there's only so much more fine-tuning you can realistically do uh, that fits and works for both teams that would be involved in a trade, if not three teams. Now, Kyle, uh, before we leave this segment, we also have to talk about your all-time favorite player and the potential that he might come back into the league and gift us with his presence once again. So we are past the trade deadline, which means we are into buyout season. We are into you know uh, random free agents off the wire or out of the G League season. Usually that means a bunch of rookies. That means a bunch of journeymen um, you know, being bought out and going wherever. Also means Boris Diaw can you know, come back from his exile in uh, the French League. Finally. Uh, and uh, so teams are out there you know, sniffing around him, uh, according to reports. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Uh, interestingly... Uh, like, you know, there are the gifts of, you know, Pop running down the hallway looking, you know, all jazzed or whatever, of, you know, back to the Spurs with you. But, uh, I mean, they kind of have a Kyle Anderson playing the, like, a Boris-like role. Right. In that, so I'm, so I'm not sure, like, where he would fit exactly, especially on contenders. Like, maybe, maybe Houston, maybe the Warriors, maybe whomever. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's fun. <laughs> it's an exciting piece of news for those of us who like uh, older, more floor-bound players who are really good at passing. So, <laughs> All right, so we'll wrap things up on the trade deadline there, and we're going to close out the episode with a telling number from the league. But first, let's hear a message from another one of our sponsors. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or need to find the perfect gift, 
SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Here's how SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to help you get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, listeners to The Lab get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LAB, L-A-B, today. That's promo code LAB for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. This is the time of the show where we've been bringing you a number from around the league that might be a trend or might be noise. We call it small sample size. But this week, we are going to do a little bit of a rebranding. We're going to change the format. And instead of focusing only on small samples, we're going to open it up to any stat that caught our eye during the week. Longtime listeners to the precursor to this podcast, Hot Takedown, will remember our significant digit segment. So this will be our SIG dig, our space where we can pull out those numbers. And this week's SIG dig is brought to us courtesy of Rachel Nichols and our friends at ESPN's The Jump. And it is 31%. That's the increase in games lost to injury this year compared with last season. Uh, and just this week, we saw Chris Tapps Porzingis of the New York Knicks tearing his ACL, which will cost him the rest of the season. And that was just the latest of many, many injuries, um, many of which have happened in the last month. We discussed on last week's episode, DeMarcus Cousins, Kevin Love, John Wall. All of these stars have gone down this year. So I wanted to open it up to you guys and ask why is this happening? Is it just a fluke? Uh, injuries were supposed to be down this year. They started the season earlier. They cut down on back-to-backs, and yet still we're seeing this almost you know, unprecedented wave of injuries to crucial players. To me, I think it's random. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, I think my hypothesis would be that it's just kind of a fluke. Um, I've looked at this stuff in the past, and I, I, I used to almost think it was certain types of people that tore their ACLs. Uh, for a while, I think there was a seven- or eight-player streak where every single guy that did it was a point guard. And I started wondering, you know, does that say something about the explosiveness of the league, all these athletic guys that kind of hurt their their knee or their leg? And, I mean, you, you could probably twist and turn the numbers into a certain way and contort them a certain way to try to develop some sort of conclusion. But it seems fluky to me. I mean, it's it's a really, really tough league. It, it, it requires a ton of athleticism for a lot of these guys. But even guys that aren't highly athletic, we saw DeMarcus Cousins rupture his um, his Achilles just going after an offensive rebound, his own miss. And so, I, I mean, that, you look at Andre Robertson's play as going up for a dunk. Porzingis tore his ACL on a dunk. Um, so, again, maybe you could try to twist it into something. But I don't, I just think it's happening. And, you know, we might see a regression to the mean next year if the numbers are up this year. Uh, we haven't dug into these numbers uh, too much, like I haven't, and like it's probably something we should do. But um, I'm, I am curious how much of these have been uh, injuries lost to season uh, or games lost to season-ending injuries versus um, you know you show up on the injury report because you have to if you're taking a day off, but you might just be taking a day off, and so that, this is a thing that's also been you know going around the league for the last several years now of just like players just needing more rest and. Whatever. So, like, yeah, we've had a lot of injuries to the star players, especially in the last few weeks. Um, but 
I'm not sure. I'm not certain that that's going to bear out. Of like that's where all of the increase um, of 31 percent increase is coming from. Yeah, it might just be an accounting thing. Like in baseball, we saw a big increase to disabled list days, but that was because they changed the length of time people could be on the DL, and teams were actually using it as a way to kind of stash players that they didn't intend to be on the roster. I mean, teams don't really even hide that behavior. I mean, they're pretty open about the fact that, yeah, you know, everyone is hurt sort of in the midst of NBA season, so we'll just say the guy is hurt if we want to give him the day off and, like, we don't care if we tell you about this. It's kind of how we're going to manage our, our roster. Um, oh, and this is the year that they changed that, where like it used to be that like Pop could put you on as DNP old, um, and like <laughs> no one would care anything about it, or you could just sit a guy and like not say anything. Whereas <laughs> this is the first year where like uh, Adam Silver was like, no, 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 you have to play these players. Like you have to at least give us a reason why you're not. And so that might, you know, contribute, you know, except for LeBron, because (laughs) because now LeBron is somehow still hasn't sat out a single game, which I look at that. I respect the hell out of it. But there's a part of me that wonders, too, how badly does he want to win another MVP? Um, Because especially in this sort of season where they're losing anyway, so many games, I think he needs to probably take time off and be ready for the playoffs, especially with the ball handling burden he's had without Irving without even a healthy Rose and obviously without a healthy Isaiah. So I, I, I agree with that. I mean, the league did step in and, and try to build in off days around a lot of these big national TV games. Uh, I still think the players in some cases have tried to play a lot of them. I think Kevin Durant was one of the first national games of the season where he uh, played through it. He was questionable, played through it, and then ended up missing like three or four games right after that because, you know, Kerr said, you know, I – we were on the fence about it. He decided he wanted to go, and now he's hurt. And so it, it's interesting. But I, like Kyle said, I think there might be there might be still a lot of incentive to just rest these guys. That might be what's showing up in the numbers. I mean, Cleveland is closer to the ninth seed than the second seed, and so it's kind of a catch twenty two where they can't afford to like uh, tank a bunch of games, right? Especially if they have to learn how to play all these new guys with LeBron. And so I don't know. I'm I know I'm going full circle here. I do wonder if LeBron at some point will say. You know, however much energy I have over the course of my career left in the tank, I do wonder if he kind of checks out. Because you see how much he exhausts himself in these playoff runs, even when they have more depth around them. And, like, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, the injuries, I mean, it's not like... I mean, Porzingis is a guy people have been worried about, like, chronic injury. But these are all, like, acute, weird things that happened. Or at least the higher-profile ones are, right? Um and so I'm not sure you can really draw that much of a theme to it. Okay, that'll do it for this week's show. As always, keep sending us your questions and comments at podcasts at 538.com. Our producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. Whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you listen to the show, be sure to review and rate the program. It helps others discover it. For Chris, Kyle, and Nate, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time.